Welcome to Famous People You've Never Heard Of, the podcast brought to you by Blue Fire Theatre Company. Each week, Lottie, Linda or Steve will guide you through the centuries to shine the spotlight once again on entertainers the world has forgotten. Thank you so much for joining us as we chat to our fabulous guests and find out more about these forgotten superstars of history. If you enjoy the podcast, do please rate, review and most importantly, subscribe so that you never miss an episode and more people find out about us. And now, let us delay no longer in introducing you to a famous person you've never heard of. is a little bit different from normal um, we haven't got any special guests we've just got me and Linda having a bit of a gossip over a glass of wine or a bottle or two um, <laughs> cheers Merry Christmas because um, we thought it's a festive season and we wanted to talk about stuff that we've been enjoying over lockdown over the summer and try and include some famous people you don't know about in that so what we've all enjoyed watching most on telly has been harlots um yes she's there were you still there linda i'm still here (laughs) i'm getting carried away no um so we've been watching harlots we've watched adult material have we not that's been brilliant and you've just told me today about this um documentary you've been watching oh channel five adults only so gonna catch up on that adults only the sex business you said that's the one yeah fantastic right i'm curing that one i'll tell you so i kind of thought is this really the oldest profession in the world no 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 the oldest profession in the world lottie is farming get that right and probably closely followed by butchery. Shall we just say the oldest entertainment industry in the world? That sounds sounds about right to me. Um, so read your Bible if you want to know about all the really ancient stuff in terms of prostitution. But we thought we'd have a little look back through the ages. Um, and we're going to start in the 16th century. But just to give you a little taster, when I was doing my tour guiding stuff I found the blue plaque in honour of Pris Fotheringham who was in the 17th century the second best whore in London now we have tried and failed to find like out the first the best, best whore I know so it answers on a postcard everyone but so if anyone this, knows we'll have to deal we have to deal with the second best whore in London but she has got a good story to tell mm. which we will come to later but Meanwhile, back into the court of King Henry VIII and a moat and drawbridge in London um, lived Elizabeth Holland. She did. So Elizabeth was the first of the great boars. Brothels were her brothel was known as the Holland's Ligera. Ligera? Oh, we have trouble with that, don't we? Um, it was on Bankside in the early 1600s. She provided the best food and wine and the prettiest and most accomplished women. Um, later sort of in that century brothels became rather high class with good food good wine and furnishings but Holland's Ligera was the first luxury brothel to be known so Holland herself came from a comfortable background up in the north with doting parents and she she was sent to a a wealthy family in London 
She proved to be very wild and ungovernable, and she married, um, but misbehaved with her husband's friends. Here we go. So she's cheeky a bit of a player, cheeky cow. Exactly. She soon became the mistress of a wealthy Italian merchant who persuaded her that she should be paid for what she was willing to give for free. As time rolled on, her age and her looks, and she was only 40, which is... I don't know, are you 20 now? No age um, at all. There's no age at all. She decided that no more the bewitching whore, but the deceiving bored was what she used to say about herself. So, yes, so her wonderful, wonderful place, which I think Lottie will tell you more about now. Well, I don't know that much more about it, apart from the fact that it did have a moat and drawbridge. And there was a lovely occasion when she was nearly arrested by the army and the soldiers came across the drawbridge and she raised it and they all <laughs> ended up in the smelly moat, which I think is quite fun. And there was a song about Elizabeth Holland um, called The Kind Believing Hostess, um, which was comparing a rival brothel to Holland's Liga. So... Throughout this time, as early as all oh, 13th century, actually, going back a little bit further, the bank side on south of the River Thames in London was the known area for prostitution. So from the 16th century through to the 18th century, Covent Garden and in particular Drury Lane was London's prime location for the sex trade. Sir John Fielding, magistrate of Bow Street Police Court, called it the Great Square of Venus. And it certainly lived up to its name. The market may have raged in the daytime, but at nighttime, men flocked to the square, not for perishable goods, but for two things, theatre and sex. With a monopoly on spoken drama granted by King Charles II, the Theatre Royal and the Royal Opera attracted droves of theatre-goers, inadvertently creating a customer-based right for the sex industry. Now, they also talk, I think this is hysterical, and also brought it to me, the forerunners for Covent Garden's prostitution, or spells that they were called back in the day, look, took full advantage of the theatre scene. Many stood outside the theatres waiting for potential clients to emerge in the intermission or adjourning with audience members to a different location where the show was over. Now, one of the things that was happening back in the day was that the, the girls during the day would be sell it, flower sellers. Um, they used to sell flowers by day and in the evening it would turn to prostitution. Now, I don't know if you remember this, Lottie, but do you remember My Fair Lady? I'm a good girl, I yeah, am. I'm a good girl, I am. I am a good girl, I am. That came from that because flower sellers got a reputation. So, so how interesting is that? So even in George Bernard Shaw's time then. Exactly. Well, now, thinking of Charles II that you were just talking about, people tend to think of him and Henry VIII in the same kind of way, not that they were in any way remotely similar to any historians listening, um, but they both got a reputation of liking the ladies. Um, but Henry VIII actually closed all the brothels on Bankside in 1546 because syphilis was so rampant. <laughs> and the um, all the girls moved out to the suburbs. And there's a lovely little song that we're going to hear read now, all about farewell to Bankside. Bankside, I hasten to add, is still there. It's got the Globe Theatre in it now and lots of very respectable things. Farewell to the Bankside, farewell to Blackman Street, 
where with my bouncing lasses I oftentimes did meet, and all the smirking wenches that dwell in Redriff town. Now farewell to St. Giles that standeth in the fields, and farewell to Turnbull Street, for that no comfort yields. In Whitecross Street and Golden Lane do strapping lasses dwell, and so there do in every street, twixt that and Clerkenwell. At Cowcross and at Smithfield I have much pleasure found, where wenches, like to fairies, did often trace the ground. Farewell, Luthner ladies, for they have got the pox. Farewell, the cherry garden, for evermore adieu. Yeah, so we're moving on to a bit later in the 17th century now, and the aforementioned Pris Fotheringham um, was in Newgate Prison, which was apparently the smelliest prison in London, and people used to cross the road um, because the stench was so bad. I can't imagine what it was like to live there. Shall I tell you about a bit of background of Pris Fotheringham? Go on then. Okay, so she was known as the second best whore in the city, um, as I said, answers on a postcard for the first. Um... She was born Pris Carswell in 1612 and married into a brothel-keeping family. Her husband Edmund was her pimp for 10 years. Pris had suffered from smallpox and was bullied and beaten by her husband and suffered with venereal disease. So she didn't have a lot going for a god lover. He also tried her for theft um, and she ran away with a sword cutter. She ended up spending a year in Newgate Prison, which we're coming back to all these people where she was reported to have met Creswell and Page, the people that we're going to talk about. Um, Pris, Pris specialised in money spinning, known as chucking. This is the most fascinating thing that I came up with, I'll tell you. It's her party piece. It's her party piece. Now, I think these nowadays, I think there's someone in Benidorm called Sticky Vicky that does this. So we know where that's come from. Standing on her head to catch the money in her commodity. Nice. <laughs> exactly. So I think that can. St- I think we still see that this day. So shall we move on to the other two? So well, we've got hang Elizabeth. on, because I happen to read a bit about Chris Fotheringham and her commodity and her party piece. And should anyone want to be trying this, and she apparently she trained up lots of young girls to do the same thing. Uh-huh. But the most comfortable way to do it is to use expensive sherry because that's much more comfortable than ordinary white wine. I'm leaving that there. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so Elizabeth Cresswell is a whole different ball game. Yes, yeah. She knew men would pay high prices for pleasure, famous for her cry, no money, no cunny. Creswell was also born to a well-connected family. Mother Creswell was known to insist on her girls being sober, elegant, well-spoken, and above all, fragrant. Creswell was finally sent to jail, not for brothel keeping in 1668, but for a bawdy house riot. This lasted for five days. Honouring a bond of £300 she guaranteed for her lover, Sir Thomas Player, who died in 1686. Creswell died in Bridgewell Prison. How sad. And then we move on to Bridewell the Oh, we'll so sorry. Bridewell Prison. There you go. And then the third of them was a Dammy. How do you say her name? Damaris. Damaris. Damaris, Damaris Page. Short name you hear now. So exactly. So it doesn't roll off the tongue that easy. Sorry for all those Damarises out there. Um, she was known as the Great Board of the Seamen. <laughs> Page. How are you spelling that? S-E-A-M-E-N. Thank you. 
Page born in Stepney around 1620, where she became a teenage prostitute. She was also known to import and export whores. Venetian women were among the most expensive of her imports, but were beyond the means of her seamen. So she would set up a brothel for the luxury end and then trade out and hire out mad um, her madams or her prostitutes to other madams. And her famous phase was, money and cunny are the best commodities. Now, old Mother Cresswell was not a popular person. She used to... I'm just looking for a quote in this book, actually. She wasn't a very good employer. Her girls didn't like her. No one else liked her very much either. She sounds like um, Lydia Quidley in She was, actually. Yeah. She used to go round the employment agencies for all the girls that were trying to get a decent job coming from the countryside to the um, to the big city where the streets were supposedly paved with, with gold. gold. Yeah. Um, and she would give them, offer them a nice job as a lady's maid or whatever, and then they'd end up in a in a brothel, which is not very pleasant at all. So no. she did not have um, a very good reputation. Seventeenth century, the sex industry, as was known then, was worth ten point four million pounds. Now that, at the time, against the building industry, which was only four million pounds, is quite an outlandish amount. Now, ten point four million pounds in today's money is eighty nine million pounds. Um, which is amazing. Bearing in mind, the sex industry then was just purely prostitution and brothels. So compared to today's market where you have internet and um, social media and all the other avenues in, um, that is quite an outstanding amount of money. So if you're comparing it to the building industry, that's at the time that whole Covent Garden, Piazza and Villiers Street and all those posh houses around there were being built. So there was an awful lot going on. It was busy in times of building, but prostitution was worth more. Mm, definitely. And, and, and a great uh, feeder to all the other things like food and dressmakers and because prostitutes suddenly gained money, they could spend, they could actually, you know, have the niceties in life. Well, it's like any industry, isn't it? It's the, the wider economy that it actually affects. You know, people are saying now it's only theatres that are being closed, but theatres might be being closed, but mm. all the restaurants and pubs that surround all them. All the things that go with it, exactly. Yeah, and the costumiers that actually that, that dress the shows and the electricians and, and not just that you buy an outfit to go to the theater you go and buy an outfit to get you know all the knock-on effect is amazing of what it kind of does isn't it you know literally elizabeth cresswell wicked woman she was only 60 when she died and her last request <laughs> I love this. <laughs> oh, dear. Was that a sermon was preached at a funeral. Now, she offered the preacher £10 for that if he could say nothing bad about her. Now, she was such a dear that they eventually found a priest who would do this and he managed to deliver the following lines. I quote, By the will of the deceased, 
It is expected that I should mention her and say nothing but well of her. All that I shall say of her, therefore, is this. She was born well, she lived well, and she died well. For she was born with the name Cresswell, she lived in Clerkenwell, and she died in Bridewell, the prison. We we saw this in um, Harlots about the most biggest commodity was selling the maidenhoods of young ladies. And I know now we touch on on the horribleness of the sex industry because although we speak light of it and it and we laugh and you know it kind of isn't is it is it dangerous but yes it is because there are like you said like Lottie said earlier these were girls were coming to London thinking that they'd get a job to help with their families you know and um work in a house as a maid but were sold very quickly to set to, to the sex trade that still happens now which is very sad um, but I know that Damiris Page, she would sell and resell, the, not just sell, but resell their maidenhoods to the highest bidder, which was a high commodity back then. And then she not only did that, she would actually get her girls to tout for business in church on a Sunday morning. So these ladies, I know we might be, be bigging them up. They are quite, ugh, you know, there is an underlining ugh, about it, isn't there? But isn't that the whole thing about... You know, the inequality of how women could actually earn a living. You know, exactly. You couldn't be a lawyer as a woman in those no. days. You couldn't be a priest. You couldn't do all sorts. You couldn't vote. couldn't actually own a house. Exactly. Um, and you, just bringing it up to date, there is... Um, I was just looking today on the government website, and I say government website, I was telling you earlier, Lottie, when you Google sex industry, oh, I dread to think what my... It is... <laughs> After getting through, was monitoring your exactly. I know. After literally, I think I typed in the safest thing: um, information about the sex industry in today's terms, and I got nipple flickers before I could even go any further. But something that came at the modern day, literally, we talked about the money and everything. It says that. The number of sex workers in the UK is estimated to be about 72,000, 72, nearly 73,000, of which 32,000 of them are working in London. Now, most of these are female and they are mothers and they're doing it to make ends meet. So that is quite a sort of sad side of it, really, isn't it? It's, do you know what's really sad about that? Mm. It just shows that yet again, in yet another field, nothing has changed. Yeah. These women in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, you know, they were just trying to earn a living the only way they possibly only could. Way, exactly. And I, I, I said to you earlier that there was a, a website that I came across that was trying to um, legalise prostitution because um, it there, there isn't, as you said, the oldest industry in the world. These are women or men, um, both sides, who don't get any pension, any safeguarding, anything. Um, but it... Whatever happens by banning it, it's still it's still going to happen. It is still going to happen. I just want to go back a little bit, actually, mm. in between where we've been, because we've been in the 17th century, mm. um, and and then we we kind of mentioned Charles II a bit, didn't we? We did. Um, and you can tell now we're into our second bottle of wine because ah. I'm getting a bit forgetful. Um, but if we can't forget Nell Gwynne and the actresses. Of the time. Um, so in the restoration, Nell Gwynne was, obviously, we know, she sold oranges and a little bit of something else on the side and ended up being 
Charles II's mistress. But at the time, there was... Because women had only just been allowed on stage before that men used to play all the women's parts. And they were all thought of as women of ill repute. And that carried on. So I'm thinking more of sort of in Victorian times when the theatrical industry probably started to get to be the way it kind of is now, which was split between the variety and the straight theatre. And the straight theatre was terribly respectable. Um, and everybody wanted those people in their front rooms. And the Variety Music Hall was seen as not so respectable. And there was a very fine line between what some of those ladies were doing on stage and what they were perceived to be doing not on stage. Um, and there was some, you know, some nasty underground stuff going on as well. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, this is a true story, right? So... I used to, many moons ago, um, sell Anne Summers stuff. Oh, I did that as well. Did you? There yeah, you yeah, there you go. Now, Anne Summers is great and it's harmless and we like the shops and some of their underwear is really pretty, um, but they sell toys as well. And most of it is done via parties. Um, but I got a gig once from head office and I went to this very nice, very big house in the south of London and met four or five very nice ladies who spent an absolute fortune. And at the end of the evening, told me that they all worked in the local massage parlour and they were buying all this stuff for work. No, really? Really, honest, truthful. Now, I, I mean, we're going off piece now, but I do have a story to tell you, actually. You, back in the sort of 80s, my sister was a model and she got commissioned by a fashion designer at the time. This is in punky kind of era a designer called Kim West. In fact, I had a few of her outfits. She actually made clothes out of rubber and I had a whole cowboy suit made out of rubber. My God, it was so difficult to go to the toilet. I cannot tell you. Mind boggles. The mind boggles. But so we go to a fat, literally a catwalk representation of this designer at the time. And I've walked in and I I went with my sister's boyfriend. We went to support her. So when the the catwalk presentation came and we thought it was really good punk music and brilliant, I mean, she was a great designer. There were these men like whipping the stage and... Well, (laughs) and talking of rubber, the first experience I ever had of a gimp mask was watching the film Personal Services. Which I've just rewatched and it is so brilliant. She was born in 1932. We, she, we lost her in 19, 2015, so not that long ago, at the age of 82. Her occupation was a madam and brothel keeper and her services were offered between the 70s and 80s, so a good 20 years. But the funniest bit, th- th- this is the funniest bit, police raided her Streatham home in 1978 where a sex party was in progress. Payments were made in luncheon vouchers, which I find hysterical. Um, 53 men were found in in all sorts of various states of undress, some in lingerie and others were being spanked at the time. In the house, there was a peer of the realm, an MP, a number of solicitors and several vicars. And at the time, there was a cartoon out which shows a vicar in bed with a prostitute confronted by a policeman. The vicar was demanding he wanted to see his solicitor and the policeman said, well, he's in the next room. (laughs) 
The case came to trial in 1918. Cynthia was sentenced to 18 months. In 1986, um, she was raided again. Um, this time, she was actually hosting a proper normal party about the, the, the shooting of her life story, which we know now to be personal services. Um, something that I discovered today as I was searching was this new law. Well, I say new law. It was passed in 1999. The first country to do it was Sweden, who passed this law called the Sex Buyer Law. And this actually said it's the first country to introduce a sex buyer law, making it illegal to pay for sex, but not to be a prostitute, which is kind of taking the emphasis off the, the prostitute. But apparently it really reduced the amount of convictions over the years. And that was later adopted by Norway, Ireland and France. Some of these women who, as we said earlier, nothing changes... They're just trying to earn a living. Exactly. The vast majority of people working in the sex industry now are single just, mothers just trying to feed their children and they have no other way of doing it. Um, and they shouldn't be penalised for that. No. If you think about it, you know, if we put ourselves back into the 18th century and we weren't quite as bright as Nell Gwynn and we didn't quite reach the, the heady highlights that she did mm-hmm. um, or even further back into the 17th century and we came in from what was then a a village actually my part of east london where i'm originally from was a village and i've turned up into the big city and looking for a little job as a cleaner or Mm. anything that means that i don't starve or have to work on the fields Mm. um and where am i going to end up with a a nice cozy Mm. lady who's going to look after you and she's got a lovely smile and she's all well-dressed and well-spoken and you end up in that horrible arena. And there were, although, you know, Cresswell's girls were all terribly well-dressed and fragrant, as we know, (laughs) um, it couldn't have all been a bundle of laughs, could it? Because none of it was on the girls' terms. So, if we took you back to the 18th century then... Where do you think you would have ended up? Would you have been in one of these baldy houses? I do, I, do you know what, Lots? I I think I might have been. Now, myself, I probably would have ended up on the wrong side of the tracks, but I like to think I would have been a bit grand, a bit like I am now. What, like Nell Gwynn? Yeah, ideas above my station and all that. <laughs> my dad used to actually sell oranges. He had a fruit and veg store on the market. It was a proper costermonger. So there might be a bit of Nell Gwynn in me. But did you know that she became a famous actress and then mistress to Charles II? Everybody knows that. But what was wonderful about Nell Gwynn was her sense of humour. And she had no ideas above her station, no airs and graces, no nothing. And when her coachman got into a fight with someone who called her a whore... She said, find something else to fight about. I am a whore. I love that. I like that Nice as well. little quote. I like to be proud of your profession. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if they had qualifications. <laughs> the Chris Fotheringham School of Ping Pong Balls. Ping Pong Balls. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, what a fascinating subject, lovely. Did Thank you. you. And we've had some people who were famous that nobody knew. We have. We found them all. Chris Fotheringham, she's your woman. Yeah, and I don't think, in fact, I know I've heard of Cynthia Payne, but I don't think many of our younger listeners would have heard of her. 
Well, unless you were around at the time, mm. um, she's kind of faded a little bit into the mists of history, mm. although it was only the, the 1980s. Exactly. So, so how quickly you know, or 15 minutes of fame. Yeah, plenty of people to look and, up Yeah, there. and one of the things that you may not have known about the film, it was actually directed by Monty Python's very own Terry Jones. There you go. There you go. And there's quite a lot, um, if anyone hasn't caught up on Harlots yet, um, it's a brilliant series mm. and it's historically it's really interesting mm. because they do cover an awful lot of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think about. So mm. it's, it's well worth a, a look and it's not, it, by no means is it all glamorous. It's not all glamorous, no. Yeah, quite the reverse. Um, so it's, it's a really good view. Oh, we have had fun recording today's podcast. We've had a right old laugh, as they say, in my neck of the woods. But we haven't forgotten that we've been talking about a very serious subject. And it has struck us, more than it normally does, that nothing much has changed over the centuries we've covered. Only the names, not the stories. Here's Moira Buffini, who wrote the television series Harlots, a story of the 18th century sex industry, that could actually have been picked up and transported into 2021 London. When Alison Newman and I started work on Harlots, we did an awful lot of research and reading into 18th century madams and brothel keepers. Um, and we found out quite a lot about the various characters operating in London at the time. Um, some really tried hard to do the best for their girls and tried to persuade them to keep off the drink and the drugs and to save their money. And others were just ruthless purveyors of female flesh. Um, we thought we thought we would make up our own boards for harlots rather than trying to base them on actual historical characters. But our research enlightened everything we wrote. Um, we thought there was no point in telling a piece of history that had no relevance to the modern day. Our whole entire point of writing Harlots was because it mattered, it matters now. Um, there is one profession in this world that has changed very little over the centuries and is the oldest profession. It's, it's sex work, prostitution, whatever you want to call it. Um, in London, at the time when we were right at the time when our piece was set, there was uh, one in five women working in the sex industry. Um, I think in Victorian times it was even higher. That figure was even higher. Um, there are still cities in the world where that is the case. That this may feel historically quite a long time ago, but geographically it isn't very far away. That there are some cities in the world where it's still the best thing a mother can do for her daughter to sell her into the sex industry. Um, we wanted to humanise that and give it character. Um, so that's one of the very strong reasons why we wrote Harlots. Um, it still matters. It's still going on. The world changes very slowly. And then our last word for this episode goes to Lynn Brown, MP for West Ham. My name is Lynn Brown and I'm the Labour MP for West Ham in East London. 
I became an MP to represent the community I grew up in, which is now, as it was then, one where many people struggle just to make ends meet. There are many barriers holding back people in my community, just like in the past. Poverty, class, a lack of a good education, racism, sexism. And these issues don't just damage my community economically and socially. It can also mean that voices don't get heard. So I think it's my job to amplify these unheard voices, to amplify unheard voices per se across this country and across the globe. And I see sex work from that perspective. So I think, and it's it's a really important thing for us to talk about as women, and even more important for us to hear, to listen to the voices of sex workers today. As we all know, there's a tendency in society to moralise about women, about their choices, about the things they wear, about what they say, what they do. Even moralise about things they do to survive. And just like with the Victorians, the face of that moralism is given many guises, many faces. Obviously, that including concern for the women themselves. I think we need to resist moralising. Because poverty is rife today in this country. And we haven't done what we needed to do to tackle it. Sex work is still very much a reality for many women today. It's an economic necessity, particularly in these difficult times. And it's just like in the past, there's there's a lot of violence and there's exploitation and there's discrimination too. But we tend to forget that a lot of this work is being done because there's simply no other choice. Some women are forced into this work. Absolutely, I get that. But others have been denied an income because of our immigration rules, what we today call the hostile environment. And let's face it, after 10 years of austerity, food banks are booming. They're an essential part of societal fabric. We know that social security is so low. Council housing is so scarce. Private rents massively high, especially in London and big cities. The financial struggle for many is just impossible. And even if you are eligible for support, it won't be enough to live on, especially if you have children to care for too. There's currently a debate in Parliament about how to respond to exploitation in the sex trade. And it's a a debate I've been having with fellow women MPs. My view is that we shouldn't be forcing the sex trade further underground because it's going to make it even more unsafe for women to secure the income that they have become reliant upon. There's other ways of doing this. Other countries tackle this in other ways. But in New Zealand, for instance, the government has responded to the vulnerability of sex workers and their their vulnerability to violence and exploitation by giving them rights and ensuring that they can report crimes against them without fear of prosecution 
or eviction. They can report crimes and be heard and have their issues dealt with. In my way, in my view, in my world, that's the best way to tackle abuse, to give people power over themselves and over their rights, to empower women, to empower women to work together, to report abusers, to give women security and income and tackle poverty at the same time. I think it's the best way to treat sex workers. If it's because actually it's the way that we would all want to be treated if we found ourselves in those circumstances. And if we do this, if we learn from countries like New Zealand, it will keep women safer. It will enable women to leave that type of work when they wish, when their circumstances change. So I'd ask us to work together to ensure that the sex industry, while it may always exist, that it treats those who work within it with dignity and with care much better in the future than it does in the past and than it does now. Thank you for listening to Famous People You've Never Heard Of. If you've enjoyed this week's podcast and would like to find out more, do take a look at the show notes where you'll find further information and reading material, as well as a transcription of today's episode. If you like what we do and would like to support our work, please check out our Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash bluefiretheatre. Or if you prefer to keep us going with a caffeine fix, you can do so at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash theatre. We really appreciate any support you can give to help keep the show on the road. And we'd also love it if you give the show a rate and a review. It really helps us to remain visible out there. And don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, where we'd love to see you.